A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. Great to have you with us once again. Lots to get to this Thursday. It's an important day for global investors as the Central Bank Symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming gets underway. The first in-person gathering of policymakers at this closely watched conference since the pandemic. The main event takes place tomorrow when Fed Chair Jerome Powell delivers a key address. Powell has a chance to clear up uncertainty among global investors about future Fed policy and the pace of Fed rate hikes going forward. The U.S. central bank needs to fight sky-high inflation on the one hand, but it doesn't want to risk triggering a sizable recession. New numbers out today show the sensitive tightrope that Powell is facing here. A new read on U.S. GDP shows the American economy contracting at a six-tenths of a percent annual rate in the last quarter. The numbers represent a bit of an improvement from the first reading a few weeks ago, but the numbers also continue to show that the U.S. economy continues to contract for a second straight quarter, the technical definition of a recession for some. As investors pour over the data, it's still looking like a higher open for global stocks overall. U.S. futures are pointing to an early session of uh, looks like green arrows and Europe mostly higher, too, after a strong Asia finish. The action in Hong Kong uh, looks especially strong as well, with uh, the Hang Seng soaring more than three and a half percent, helped by news of further stimulus measures from China. More on that in just a moment. But first, devastation on Independence Day. At least 25 people were killed Wednesday when a Russian attack hit a train station in southeastern Ukraine with dozens more injured. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said at least four rockets hit the station and a passenger train. The White House says President Biden is set to speak with Mr. Zelensky sometime today. David McKenzie joins us live now from Kyiv. David, what more can you tell us about this attack? Well, it's certainly a very significant attack, and uh, the Ukrainians say devastating to civilian life. At least 25 people killed, and you look at those pictures and videos show a very large series of blasts or single blasts, and at least two children tragically were killed, an 11-year-old and a 6-year-old. It happened on Independence Day here uh, towards the uh, early afternoon uh, in the eastern part of the country at a train station. Now, the Russian military uh, is saying something very different. They say it was a missile attack on uh, Ukrainian military reservists on the way to the Eastern Front. They say a very large number of Ukrainian uh, military was killed and several uh, assets of the Ukrainian military was hit. Uh, this is really the pattern of this conflict in that uh, the evidence sometimes appears very clearly to show uh, civilian uh, structures being hit, and the Russians claim that it's a military uh, targeting. Uh, it's just impossible to verify 100% from our side, but it is certainly a, a very significant attack and one of the worst death tolls in recent weeks uh, in strikes like this. Alison? David, the U.S. is strongly condemning upcoming trials uh, scheduled for Ukrainian prisoners of war, calling them show trials and a mockery of justice. What more are you learning about this? Well, a official in that area is saying it appears that possibly the finishing touches are being made to a uh, courthouse, and I use that in a very loose term, of what the State Department calls these show trials which uh, the Russian uh, occupiers in that area of uh, Ukraine uh, appear to be preparing 
uh, to put on trial, according to uh, official there of the self-declared uh, Donetsk Republic, are, are both prisoners of war and members of the Azov Battalion. That, uh, according to the U.S. State Department and Ukraine, uh, and just citizens on the street here, put up an extremely brave defense of Mariupol months ago. Uh, many of them eventually surrendered. Now it looks like the Russians or the Russian authorities there are going to be putting them on this uh, trial so to speak. It's uh, getting a great deal of criticism, of course, from Ukraine, but also from Western powers, uh, saying that it's a way uh, for the Russian President Putin to mask or divert attention from what they call his war crimes and atrocities during this conflict. Alison? Okay, David McKenzie, live from Kyiv. Thanks very much. China is unveiling fresh stimulus measures. The government has announced a new $146 billion plan to support the economy suffering from COVID lockdowns, a property sector downturn, as well as an historic heat wave. Blake Essig joins us now with the latest. So the drought is just adding to China's long list of major economic challenges. Yeah, look, uh, economic challenges compounded by the impact of China's zero COVID strategy. Allison, uh, that's something China has control over. Mother Nature, that's arguably a different story from tropical cyclones and floods to now uh, record-breaking heat drought and wildfires. China's summer of extremes continues. And this recent video from Chongqing uh, really encapsulates what the people have been dealing with. Brush fires raging in the background as roughly 10 million people living in the city are required to endure extreme temperatures uh, while waiting in long lines to undergo mandatory COVID testing after a few uh, local positive cases were discovered as of today. Uh, a red alert notice, its most severe heat warning, uh, has been issued for at least 67 cities across uh, the country, the vast majority in southern China, where temperatures are expected to surpass uh, 40 degrees Celsius or 140 degrees uh, Fahrenheit within the next 24 hours. The good news is that number of 67 cities is down from 147 cities the day before, and Chinese meteorological officials uh, say the heat wave is receding. The bad news is that it still remains incredibly hot across large parts of China to deal with the heat uh, and conserve energy as well. Chinese cities uh, have been taking measures to reduce power consumption in Shanghai. Uh, much of the city's colorful night skyline, uh, skyline has gone dark, including billboards and outdoor advertisements in, in, in Sichuan province. Uh, to ensure partial residential power supplies, uh, this week power has been cut to factories, public facilities, uh, shops, and residential areas in 19 of 21 cities. In some spots, uh, subway trains ran in darkness. People have spent their days inside shopping malls, while others have spent their nights on a bridge because it's too hot to sleep at home. And villagers uh, in Chinchen have even sheltered inside burial caves, uh, home to 2,000-year-old ancient tombs. Of course, uh, this record-setting heat wave has also had ripple effects uh, beyond the high temperatures. Millions of people living in Hubei province and parts of southern China have been affected by severe drought since June. As a result, uh, lakes and rivers are drying up and an estimated 40 percent of crops have been damaged and hundreds of thousands of people are struggling to access drinking water, highlighting uh, the desperation here. Several times over the past 10 days, Chinese authorities have literally tried to make it rain by cloud seeding. In this case, uh, Chinese planes are firing silver iodide rods into clouds to help form ice, cra uh, ice crystals and produce rain. Uh, this drought in southern China, again, uh, the good news potentially receding, but is expected to continue to last uh, through at least this week. Allison?
Okay, Blake Essig, thanks so much for your reporting. Pandemic in the past, the Australian airline Qantas leaving coronavirus in its wake. And as passenger demand returns, it says the existential crisis posed by the pandemic is now over. But Qantas is suffering flight cancellations, staffing shortages, and baggage problems. Many other airlines around the world are grappling with those things, too. CNN's Pete Montine spoke exclusively with the CEO of United Airlines, and Pete joins us now from Denver International Airport. Uh, Pete, good to see you. So what did the CEO say about uh, the ability for United to keep up with the strong demand? Well, you know, Allison, this is really interesting, especially with the Labor Day rush right around the corner. Big numbers expected here at Denver International Airport, a major hub for United Airlines. United expecting 2.6 million passengers on its airline alone. But remember that Monday was one of the worst days for flight cancellations in the U.S. we have seen in weeks. The weather especially bad in major hubs like Dallas. Now the question is whether or not the travel system is up to the task. We got an exclusive look at what United Airlines is doing, and we pressed CEO Scott Kirby for answers. Another week of air travel pain across the country is turning up the pressure on airlines to perform with the Labor Day rush fast approaching. This past Monday alone, more than 1,400 flights were canceled nationwide, the fourth highest of the summer. Both Southwest and American Airlines delayed more than 40% of all their flights. Our flight was canceled. Yesterday. <laughs> Yesterday. Now we're back again today. It was canceled this morning, and now we're back again. United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby says hiring here at its training center in Denver has made its pandemic recovery quicker than others. Since the start of this year, United has hired 1,500 new pilots in hopes of alleviating staffing shortages and canceled flights. In total, U.S. airlines have canceled more than 44,000 flights since June. All airlines are not created equal. In an exclusive interview, Kirby put some of the blame back on the federal government. Last week, the Federal Aviation Administration said a shortage of air traffic controllers delayed flights into Newark, JFK, and LaGuardia by up to two hours. Frankly, the bigger challenges are not the airlines themselves. They're all the support infrastructure around aviation that hasn't caught up as quickly. Let me push back on that just a tiny bit because United has had 5,000 cancellations this summer. What do you say to somebody who does see this as an airline issue rather than some other cause? Well, first I would say we're doing everything we can to get the airline running reliably. We know that's the most important thing for a customer. It's our number one priority. We had ground stops for the entire day. Um, and when the FAA says you can't land airplanes at the airport, you're going to have delays and cancellations. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg insists air traffic control issues do not account for many cancellations this summer. In a letter to airline executives, Buttigieg says the level of disruption Americans have experienced this summer is unacceptable and is telling airlines to review their customer service commitments to passengers. I'm calling on the airlines to step up their game uh, before we have to do even more. For United, that starts with training that focuses on quality, something I got to try in a Boeing 737 simulator. Nice. I feel like that was a little hard. No, that's good. <laughs> Our growth plan, the most aggressive growth plan of any airline in the history of aviation is really the driver behind the need for our pilots. I also asked United CEO Scott Kirby if he's feeling the pressure from passengers. He says customer satisfaction 
is going up, but it's not totally where he wants it just yet. Two major tips if you are traveling over the Labor Day holiday. One, ditch that checked bag. If you carry on, that leaves you more flexibility. And two, try and ditch connections in your itinerary. If you fly nonstop, have fewer connections, it opens you up to fewer opportunities for delays and cancellations, Allison. Good advice, Pete. And I have to point out, you may have been in a flight simulator, but I know you are an actual pilot and flight instructor. So that was probably <laughs> easy stuff for you, wasn't it? It was a blast. <laughs> yeah. Glad to hear it. Was it was very fun, and it was a very nice opportunity that United gave us. So, yeah, it was totally fun and a good educational experience. Sounds great. Pete Montine, thanks so much. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. In Myanmar, Britain's former ambassador to the country is under arrest. Vicky Bowman was detailed, uh, detained rather, along with her husband, and they were charged with, breaking, with breaching immigration law. This comes just a day after the U.K. announced new sanctions on Myanmar's military leadership. Paula Hancox joins us live with more. The, the timing of this is curious, isn't it, Paula? Absolutely, Alison. I mean, we don't know for sure why she was arrested in the minds of the military, uh, but certainly we can point out what the coincidences are. And as you said there, this comes just as the UK has put more sanctions uh, on uh, on Myanmar's military junta. This on the fifth year, uh, the fifth year anniversary of that brutal uh, massacre of the Rohingya minority in Rakhine State. The, the UK also saying that they were going to uh, intervene and become more involved uh, in uh, in the the law case that's going on at the moment, allegations of genocide against Myanmar in the UN's top court, and so this does come at the same time as we are hearing uh, of uh, of Vicky Bowman being arrested along with her husband. She is the former UK ambassador to Myanmar from 2002 to 2006. Uh, she has been in the country for many years. She speaks fluent Burmese. She is married to a Burmese man, and he is uh, not only a renowned artist, but also a former political prisoner. He was one of the student protesters back in 1988. We know that many of those uh, former political prisoners have been arrested by the military junta since they took control of the country back in February of last year. Now, what we're hearing from the military themselves, this is uh, their version of events. They say that she has been charged under the Immigration Act. They say that, uh, that the address that she gave on her visa did not match the address of her residence. And this is the reason they say that they have arrested and charged her at this particular time that, if found guilty, does have a, a maximum prison term of five years. Now, we've heard from the UK Foreign Office as well. They haven't confirmed uh, her identity, but they have said we are concerned by the arrest of a British woman in Myanmar, saying that they're in contact with authorities and providing consular assistance. But this is uh, really interesting timing, coming at the same time as those increased sanctions. And certainly it will be a concern of, uh, of those in the UK Foreign Office uh, trying to uh, find out how they can help their former ambassador. Alison. All right, Paula Hancox, thank you. I know you'll be following this story. The U.S. says Iranian-backed militants have fired rockets at coalition bases in Syria, an apparent response to American airstrikes, which were captured in this video. The latest rocket attack injured at least three U.S. service members. The U.S. says it returned fire, killing two or three people. That's according to initial assessments. <laughs> The 
Demonstrators in Western, Western Iran this week are calling for government officials to resign. This after water was reportedly cut off more than a week ago amid a widespread and relentless drought. Officials say their top priority is to complete a pipeline to supply drinking water within the next three weeks. Hundreds gathered outside an anti-terrorism court in Islamabad to show support for Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan. Khan was granted a one-week extension of his protective bail, which means he cannot be arrested until then. Police are investigating whether Khan broke anti-terrorism laws during a speech at a rally over the weekend. Still to come, new economic data in the U.S. could offer insight into the state of the economy. Mark Sandy joins me to discuss ahead of Jerome Powell's Jackson Hole Wyoming policy speech. And a new kind of supercar turning the auto industry on its head. You'll never guess how it's made. Stay tuned. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. futures still pointing to a higher Wall Street Open this Thursday. Stocks on track for their second straight day of gains. But the major averages are still down for the week overall. How we finish the week will have a lot to do with Fed Chair Jerome Powell's tone during tomorrow's Jackson Hole, Wyoming policy speech. Powell could hold out hope for a slower pace of Fed rate hikes later this year and perhaps a rate hike pause further further down the line if inflation moderates. He could take a harder line and leave the door open to another big rate hike next month, or he could simply play his cards close to the vest. The Fed, after all, is vowing to become much more data dependent going forward and perhaps less transparent about its future moves. Meantime, just released numbers show the U.S. economy still contracting in the second quarter. GDP dropping by an annual rate of six-tenths of a percent, a bit better than the preliminary reading of nine-tenths of a percent with consumer spending numbers revised higher. Mark Sandy joins me now. He is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Great to have you on the show again, Mark. Thanks, Allison. So GDP, the upper revision still negative, consumption higher more conflicting signs on whether or not we are in an actual recession, which technically we are, right? No, well, no, I don't think so, Allison. Uh, You know, for me, what matters most in terms of judging whether we're in recession or not is jobs. Are we creating jobs or people employed? Is unemployment low? And uh, we're creating a lot of jobs, uh, half a million last month, 10 million over the last 18 months. Unemployment's at three and a half percent. That's back down to the low prior to the pandemic. Uh, layoffs are very low. Uh, there's a, a close to 10 million unfilled positions, open positions. So, you know, looking at the job market, which again, I think is the most important thing in terms of judging recession or not, it, it, this is not a recession. We are seeing signs, though, at least the analysts are saying that they're seeing signs that Americans are extending their credit card debt, depleting their savings. What does that say to you about a recession in the, in the broader economy? Well, uh, you're right. I mean, because of the high inflation, painfully high inflation, I mean, for the typical American household, they have to shell out almost $500 more a month to buy the same goods and services they were a year ago. That is cutting into people's savings, particularly lower income households, folks in the bottom part of the income distribution. And uh, there is some financial pressure that's developing there. And those households, uh, you know, are having to make some pretty tough, hard uh, choices here, you know, do I fill my gas tank? Uh, do I pay my rent? Uh, you know, uh, grocery bills, that kind of thing. 
So the, the stress uh, uh, points are uh, intensifying in the economy and the economy is beginning to struggle. So we need to get that, that inflation back down again here pretty soon. Otherwise, recession risk uh, will arise and uh, recession seems more, more likely than not. I think Jay Powell's message will be at Jackson Hole tomorrow. Exactly that, that we need to get inflation down and he's going to do everything he can to do that without pushing us into recession. And so that means more interest rate hikes. You know, he's got, a, 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 I think, a pretty clearly articulated script, uh, a, a half point increase, another half point increase in the federal funds rate. That's the rate uh, the Fed controls uh, when the Fed meets in September, a quarter point uh, in November, a quarter point in December. That would put the funds rate at three and a half percent. And that's probably where it's going to stay for a while until he can make an assessment of, you know, what it all means for the economy and for inflation. But uh, my sense is that if he sticks roughly to that script and articulates that, Markets will take take that in stride, and uh, you know ultimately that will allow the, the economy to navigate through without actually suffering a recession. To the U.S. housing market, we learned existing and new home sales fell in July. Housing starts they tumbled as well. Do you think the housing market is in a recession? Yes, uh, that is, that part of the economy is indeed in recession, and you know to some degree that's by design, right? So the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates to try to try to slow growth quell wage and price pressures, uh, get that inflation rate down. The most interest rate sensitive part of the economy sector is housing, because when we go out and buy a home, we need a mortgage. And uh, that's tied to the mortgage interest rate. So it's not surprising that housing is struggling, uh, but it is clearly in recession. We haven't seen any house price declines yet. Uh, That hasn't happened, but I suspect we will you know, as we move uh, later into the year, as sellers kind of figure out that they can't sell their home at the current price. But uh, that's coming. But yeah, uh, housing is struggling. Okay, to President Biden's uh, student debt relief plan, um, many critics saying that this is adding to inflationary pressures in the economy. What do you say to that? Uh, No, I, you know, I I don't think so. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of cross currents here. I mean, the the debt forgiveness, all else being equal, that, yes, would uh, help support growth and increase inflation. But uh, the president's going to also ask uh, current uh, debt holders to start repaying on on their debt. As you know, during the pandemic, uh, the, there was a moratorium on those debt payments. That's going to restart at the beginning of next year. That's going to, all else being equal, s- slow growth and slow inflation. So you Take a look at those cross currents, headwinds, tailwinds. I, I just don't really see any impact on inflation. No. I did want to ask you uh, one follow to the housing question um, because it was a yeah. lack of of supply that drove prices up. But if home builders, if they start to see prices coming down, will that remove uh, will that remove the incentive to build more? Yeah, that's a great point. Kind of ironic, right? I mean, we need more ho- housing uh, to make sure that rent growth and house price growth uh, begin to moderate. Uh, and of course, these high interest rates make it less attractive for builders to go out and build. Uh, I, I suspect they will continue to build. There, there is a record number of homes in the pipeline going towards completion. Uh, they've been kind of stuck there, can't get across the finish line because of all the supply chain issues. You know, I can't get a, an appliance. Mm-hmm. I can't get the lumber. I can't get, you know, whatever it needs to be to finish the home. But those supply chain issues are ironing themselves out. So we'll get more completions, more more uh, housing start. So I, I think home builders will, will hang tough. We'll get we'll get those homes uh, built. But you make a great point uh, that that is a uh, uh, you know a negative consequence of the higher rates. We might not get as much housing as uh, we otherwise would have. 
All right. A big thanks to Mark Zandi, the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Thanks for your expertise today. Sure thing, Allison. Still to come, sweet rewards for online shoppers in the form of Bitcoin. I'll be talking with the CEO of Bitcoin rewards app, Lolly, about what's next for Bitcoin adoption. Stay with us. And welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. A little rock and roll shot there of uh, the NYSE opening. U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday. A higher start for Wall Street overall after the S&P 500 broke a three-day losing streak yesterday. Stocks advancing even as U.S. benchmark yields and oil prices tick higher, but gains for the major averages could be muted ahead of tomorrow's all-important policy speech by Fed Chair Powell. Stocks in the news today include Tesla, shares higher on its first day of trading after its three-for-one stock split. Lots of market-moving earnings news today as well. Shares of stationary bike maker Peloton are falling after posting a more than $1 billion quarterly loss and a weak start to the trading day for discount retailers Dollar General and Dollar Tree. Dollar Tree slashing its forecast, but Dollar General raising its guidance. To parse through all this, let's bring in Paul Monica. He joins us live. Paul, what do the earnings from these uh, dollar stores, what do they say? And then what do they say about the consumer and how they're spending? Yeah, it's fascinating, Allison. As you pointed out, Dollar General is holding up better than Dollar Tree. But there are some concerns about consumer spending overall that I think are weighing on both of those stocks. What I found interesting is that Dollar General said that sales of things like apparel and holiday uh, goods and other household products, they actually fell in the quarter. So where Dollar General is still, excuse me, Dollar Tree is still doing what Dollar General, oh, it's these two dollar stores. It's hard to keep track sometimes. Dollar General is holding up better with the quote unquote consumables part of the business, things like food and drugstore items, beverages. That's a lower profit margin part of their business, even though it's the overwhelming majority of sales. So I think the consumer is starting to feel the pinch of inflation, even at dollar stores and Dollar Tree. They're struggling because they're still trying to merge the family dollar brand within Dollar Tree. And there's also the whole uh, backlash to them raising prices late last year that got them, uh, you know, called Dollar 25 Tree somewhat derisively. Yeah. And something tells me they won't be changing the sign outside their store to that. But that's for another discussion. I want to talk about Peloton for a moment, taking a huge hit, but then learning that Amazon will be selling Peloton equipment and apparel on its site. Could, could this lead to something bigger? Perhaps Amazon just buying the whole company and then having a subscription through Amazon Prime? Yeah, I mean, it is a good idea, I think, on paper. Amazon obviously has the cash and financial wherewithal to do something if they so chose. So maybe this is sort of a trial balloon to see how this partnership works out. Peloton did get a big boost yesterday because of the Amazon news, but the reality has sunk back in today, Allison, because the earnings were terrible. First of all, they weren't earnings. They lost more than a billion dollars, as you already alluded to. Sales are falling. There are worries about whether or not Peloton, which is trying to make a lot of changes with a new CEO, can really go it alone. And I think you're going to see increased speculation that at some point, 
Peloton might be a one-trick pony that would be better off as part of a larger company, whether that's Amazon, whether it's another athletic apparel company like a Nike or a tech giant. I think all that remains to be seen, but I don't think Peloton takeover talk is going to go away anytime soon as long as the company keeps reporting numbers as lousy as today's were. <laughs> a lot to watch there. Paula Monica, thanks so much. Most shoppers are used to getting deals for shopping at their favorite stores. Think free shipping or a buy one, get one free. But how about earning Bitcoin? Lolly is a free browser extension and mobile app that allows users to earn Bitcoin when they shop from its retail partners. Those partners include an impressive list of major brands like Chevron, CVS, Ulta, Microsoft, Macy's, and Sephora. It is currently only available in the U.S., but Lolly says its mission is to make Bitcoin accessible for everyone, turning the average shopper into an investor, a Bitcoin investor. Alex Edelman is the CEO of Lolly, and he joins us now. Alex, great to have you on the show and a special week for you because your company just celebrated its fourth birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. It's been a great four years. Good to hear. So let's talk about crypto in general and how that's affecting your company. Um, although the crypto winter, it seems to be thawing a bit. It is, you know, what was happening with Bitcoin is it really is stuck in a narrow range. For, it, it has been for a while. And Bitcoin's price has, has seen an almost 70 percent drop in value since its all time high of 68,000. Talk us through how you've seen traffic in your app change during that volatility. I mean, is there less interest in using your app when Bitcoin is just less buzzy? No, uh, quite the opposite. So, you know, we're, we're seeing an incredible amount of people, you know, start to wake up to uh, what inflation is doing to their currency that they know, love and trust. And so they're looking for alternatives. Um, some countries, you know, more than others uh, are, are realizing they need something that has a set uh, set of parameters of, of exactly how much currency is going to be in the market. So um, what people are doing right now is, is what we're, they're calling stacking the dip. Uh, where they can actually earn Bitcoin when you know Bitcoin is historically in in a low, but is actually acting right now as almost a stable coin, um, you know, hovering around twenty to twenty one k. Yeah, it certainly isn't moving much. Although today I saw it was up one and a third percent, but it's neither here nor there because tomorrow could be down. The same as well. I'm curious with the growth of Lolly. Do you see? Maybe expanding to considering even adding Ethereum at, on your platform. So right now we're very focused on Bitcoin adoption. You know, we think uh, Bitcoin has already proven its value to society all over the world um, and, and served as, as a way to provide financial inclusivity uh, to everyone. Um, I think other chains, other uh, cryptocurrencies are in its infancy and uh, with you know new regulation that's coming along, it's going to be interesting to see uh, what countries do. Do they treat you know these these other currencies um, as securities? So, um, you know, do these other um chains like Ethereum, um, you know, upgrade uh, with the new merge and, and what happens there. So there's, you know, we're, we're excited about innovation and we're excited about, you know, the human potential of uh, what we can possibly do with new chains and new currencies. Uh, but right now, Bitcoin's doing exactly what it set out to do 13 years ago. Um, other chains are in, in their infancy and uh, we really want to be a conduit of providing people with the best currency uh, in the world, which we think is Bitcoin. Um, and as you know, other other chains develop. You know, we are open to innovation and change um, as our as our users demand it, and our our merchants demand it as well. In September 2019, you said you're not open to being bought, meaning Lolly. 
Do you still feel that way? Uh, interesting question. I, I mean, look, we, um, my, my goal is to, you know, to take Bitcoin to as many people as possible. Um, right now, we're, it, it's, you, know, you, you don't wake up every day when you're building a company uh, with an incredible team and think, oh, I want to get, you know, I want to, I want to sell, sell my baby, sell, sell the company. Um, you know, we, we want to grow. Uh, we want to bring Bitcoin to uh, billions of people. Um, and, you know, the, we're always going to look for the best ways to do that. So right now, just focus on, on growing by ourselves. Um, but never say never if, if it meant uh, growth. What about an IPO? Is that in your future? That, that's, more, that's more our cup of tea. So you're definitely open to that. Yes, I like, I like the idea of IPOing uh, Lolly and um, you know, it giving us the ability to you know, play in a public market um, and, and be more accessible to everybody. We've, uh, we've had a joke with our, our users from day one of like, you know, uh, a lot of people say, you know, win moon. A lot of people have asked like win IPO. So uh, it'd be cool to, you know, to run a public company and also give um, you know, people the ability to uh, invest in Lolly and play a part of the journey. Yeah, very exciting uh, for lots of shoppers to really just have access to Bitcoin when they wouldn't otherwise think of it. It's so easy to use. I was going through it yesterday. So once again, congratulations, four years. Great talking with you, Alex Edelman, CEO of Lolly. Thank you for having me. In Sierra Leone, the government is facing accusations that it's using a new cybercrime law as a legal cover to crack down on political dissent. The law was supported by the UK and the European Union, but European officials say it was never meant to be used against free speech. CNN's Katie Puglaze has the story and a warning here. Some of the video is disturbing to watch. On August 10th in Sierra Leone's capital, Freetown, people took to the streets to protest a worsening cost of living crisis. Rising food shortages have left over half the population without enough food to eat, according to the World Food Programme. Protesters held rocks, set buses alight. Authorities were quick to condemn the destruction, which they said left eight officers dead, with the president of Sierra Leone labelling the protesters as terrorists. There was no mention of the number of civilians killed, which Reuters reported as high as 21. But it was the severe police crackdown both on the streets and online that has revealed worrying signs of a government suppressing freedom of speech. The voice you're hearing is of 20-year-old Jibrila Kojo. Sitting on his balcony, he calls for those running past to be careful and not damage the cars parked below. Just over an hour later, Jibrilla would be dead. His friend David, whose name we have changed to protect his identity, witnessed the shooting and says Jibrilla was shot in the neck by Sierra Leone's police. It was totally ambulance. It was not even part of the protest. It was at the balcony watching the protest. David's videos of the events are rare and risky. He told CNN he believes it was the sight of him and his friend filming that made them a target for police. CNN analyzed a bullet casing found at the scene, which was confirmed by weapons experts to be from live ammunition. The police have made no comment on whether they did use live bullets during the protests. 
David's filming two hours before Jabrilla's death reveals armed police standing on the streets below. You can see the red hats indicating it's the Operational Support Division, an armed unit of the police, which according to Amnesty International has a track record for shooting at unarmed protesters dating back to 2007. As other scenes of injured and bloodied protesters across Freetown began to be shared on social media, the internet was cut off. By midday, just half an hour after Jabrilla's death, NetBlocks recorded a total shutdown of the internet, activity NetBlocks identified as an intentional disruption. The next day, a statement was issued by the government's Department for Cybersecurity warning that anyone spreading incendiary information online could be punished with up to 20 years in prison. And the basis for this threat was a new cybersecurity law introduced in 2021 and backed by the EU, UK and the Council of Europe. To sign into law today the Cybersecurity and Crime Act. The law had aimed to safeguard intellectual property and privacy online and was part of a broader initiative by the EU and UK to fund projects across Africa that tackled cybercrime. In statements to CNN, the EU and UK delegations to Sierra Leone said they were engaging with the government on freedom of speech and protest. The delegation encouraged all measures which lead to dialogue and refrain from repressive measures, the EU said. And the Council of Europe said the spreading of incendiary information is not listed in the offences under the Act. Do you think it's what the UK and EU intended for this law to be used by? Definitely not. I mean, uh, neither the EU, which is founded upon uh, the the basic principles of of, uh, human rights, and, and nor any democratic state in the world, including the United Kingdom, would uh, even consider an attempt to limit the freedom of speech in, in such a manner. Reporters Without Borders told CNN any repressive provision of freedom of expression online must be repealed and said they called on authorities in Sierra Leone to highlight the fact the act should not interfere with the rights to freedom of expression. And for many in Sierra Leone who spoke to CNN, they said this law made them fearful to use social media to document what they witnessed during the August 10th protests. They want you guys to see it, like before your medias. They want before your medias to be seen these videos. Do you feel scared right now? Of course, yes. Of course, on the button, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I'm actually expecting a physical announcement. Katie Poglase, CNN, London. CNN reached out to government officials in Sierra Leone for comment regarding the new cybersecurity law and also the Amnesty International report, but have not heard back. Coming up after the break, a zinger of a car. While this mean machine can tear tear up a racetrack the way it's built, that may surprise you. So that's the roar of a street-legal supercar that can reach 253 miles an hour and set a new lap record at the Laguna Seca racetrack. While its cockpit was inspired by a Lockheed spy plane, the really radical thing about this $2 million American hypercar is the way it's built. Much of the Zinger 21C is made with 3D printed parts. The company says there is no excess material, and if something can't be used, 
it can be recycled. The first deliveries are set for next year in a limited production run of 80, and the 21C is the first of several planned models. While the parent firm Divergent is already working with other car makers, including Aston Martin of James Bond fame. I want to bring in Kevin Zinger. He is the CEO and founder. Great to have you with us. Great being here. Thanks so much. That was a great introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's pretty easy when you look at that car and listen to how, how its engine roars. The 21C is, is, is really cool, and it's being called revolutionary. Talk with us more about um, you know, the construction of this car, meaning is all of the car actually 3D printed? So what's 3D printed are really the functional structures of the vehicle. So on a, a, a automobile, you're going to have a body and then underneath that body is the real structural frame and the powertrain parts, the parts that really protect you in a crash and power the vehicle. And those parts that protect you in the crash and power you in the vehicle, all of those are generatively designed using supercomputing and AI and 3D printed and automatically assembled in a full digital manufacturing platform. But the weight of the car is significantly less than a steel welded car. Um, What about the safety factor of this? Well, the machine when it's designing is also designing for crash concurrently with all of the other engineering objectives. So this vehicle is as safe as any other normal vehicle because it's designed to meet all crash standards. So the the ductility, the crumpling, the crash performance is engineered into the structures themselves. Talk us through how, you know, the the reality of of how amazing this car is. It's got this Batmobile image, but you want the focus on the methods of what went into the manufacturing process, because from what I understand, you're trying to actually change the way all cars are designed and manufacturers through your examples here. That's correct. So if you look, it's really taking the automotive industry from, to use an analogy, the typewriter era to Mac desktop publishing. So we're normally when we're manufacturing, we're stamping a piece of flat sheet steel or flat aluminum that's the same gauge. This is using supercomputing and AI within a design space in three dimensions to create a perfectly optimized structure. And when you do that, you're able to meet all of the performance requirements, but dramatically reduce the material and energy inputs And that's what we want to do across all of automotive. All of these physical structures reduce material and energy inputs, make manufacturing much more efficient, make the products much higher performing by making them much more optimized. Would that stand up to mass production, though? Yes. So if you look, uh, Zinger Vehicles is this American brand, L.A.-based, that's there to provide uh, really off the hook performance vehicles across a number of different segments. The parent uh, technology company, Divergent, last week it was announced we're already delivering at volume uh, frames for the Aston Martin Vantage. We have a half dozen uh, major uh, automotive uh, brands 
that we're going to be supplying these structures for over the next few years. And the volumes of those vehicles go up into the tens of thousands. So this is uh, a technology which is scalable and is going to be fundamentally disruptive at volume. How are the orders with the 21C? You've got 80 that are gonna hit the market. Uh, terrific, I mean, the one thing that's been very heartening and we were at Pebble Beach last week is, we're almost sold out of all of these vehicles now. I mean, people really look at this and they say, this is an amazing American brand. It's something that's discontinuous from whatever has been made before. And what I tell people is, these are vehicles of historic impact and importance. These vehicles signal the transition from the analog built world to a digital built world that is much more mass and energy efficient and capital efficient and allows us to have much more high performing products while having much less impact on the environment. Well, I must say, even the look of it is just, it's just incredible to watch that thing drive. I, I love it. I, I would love to feel how that is inside the cockpit. Anyway, Kevin Zinger, CEO and founder of Zinger us. Vehicles. What was that? Come, come visit and we'll take you for a ride. Okay, maybe so, maybe so. All right, thanks so much for your time today. Sounds good, have a great day. You too. And finally on First Move, we love to end on a dog story and it was a case of love at first bark for Meghan Markle and Prince Harry who saw this beagle in need of adoption in Los Angeles. Seven-year-old Mamma Mia is one of 4,000 dogs saved from a facility in uh, Virginia, a breeding facility, so they adopted her. The Beagle Freedom Project has rescued 27 dogs so far and is expecting 50 more next month. That's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on the gram and on Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.